page and to have this conversation with you this evening. And um, I want to just really applaud Faith Presbyterian and your leadership for opening the doors to talk about this stuff because it's really not easy. And I've been meeting with other churches and other leaders, and a lot of people are kind of ducking the topic for a lot of different reasons. And I just praise God that you guys are here tonight, and, and over the next 24 hours, I hope that the Lord does something really extraordinary for all of us uh, to further a conversation I think is really dear to his heart. And so uh, one of the things that I hope comes from any conference or gathering like this is really what happens afterward. It's really easy to get together and to talk and to hear and to do some different presentations and even to dive into the scriptures, but we're always told to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers. And I don't really know what that means for you, but I would just hope that through the conference you would just pray uh, in your own time with the Holy Spirit and essentially saying, Lord, how would you have me deal with this material? What would you have us do as a family, as a church, to really advance this conversation for your church, but also for you as individuals? I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not an expert on this. Um, nowhere close. Don't claim to be. Um, my wife and I have been involved in uh, urban ministry for 20 years and uh, seen the Lord do some really incredible things. But at the same time, we are uh, still on this journey with you and alongside of you. So what I'd love to do, if we can, just real quickly, is bow our heads and uh, give this evening to Jesus, and then we'll dive in together. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, uh, as David just said, Lord, that you close the gap between us and yourself uh, through the tremendous sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if it was not for him, none of us would be here tonight. Lord, we are so, so thankful for that. And Lord, we know that we have been entrusted according to your word, uh, with a message of reconciliation that you have called us to bring uh, to the world around us. And Lord, I just pray that tonight, with these opening comments, Lord God, that you would just speak through me, um, that you would have your way, that you would, uh, Lord, uh, use me as a conduit to communicate what's in your heart. Lord, I don't want to get in the way with my own opinions, with my own perspectives, but Lord, I want you to have your way. And uh, Pray that each of us would leave tonight, Lord, with a better understanding of who you are and what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. When we think about um, race for a moment, uh, there's certain people that you run into, and they'll tell you that we essentially live in kind of a post-racial America, uh, that we've essentially gotten past all these issues that David just highlighted from the 1960s. I wasn't alive during the Civil Rights Movement. I imagine some of us weren't. And so it's easy to look backward and to um, basically say, look, we've evolved past some of the more grotesque times in our history. And uh, some people even say we live in an essentially a post-racial America, um, that those issues are pretty much behind us. But if you look uh, at racism and racial tension as a construct or as a concept, I think it's so important to couch it under the umbrella of sin. Um, If I were to stand up here today right now and say, you know what, I think we live in a post-greed America. What would you say to me? What would you say about that if I said we're in a post-greed America? You'd say, Ben, come on. We as individuals struggle with greed. There's corporate greed. There's greed within our churches. And there's no way that we're going to overcome that in our lifetime, correct? Well, racism in and of itself is also a sin. Racial tension is part of a sin. And so we have to deal with it understanding that we're going to face it and fight it until Jesus Christ returns. It's not something that's just going to go away. It reinvents itself, and it pops up in very, very different ways. 
And we need to think about it in individual characteristics. And this is where I'm just going to ask you to be bold tonight. But we hear more and more people say this. They say, Ben, I'm colorblind. I, I, don't, I see everybody the same. I would like to tell you tonight that that's the case with me, that I'm just able to see anybody and not see the externals. But I tell you this, I struggle with greed. I struggle with deception. I struggle with every other sin. If I'm honest with myself, I still qualify people based on the external things that I see. Are we bold enough to admit to say, you know what, even if it's a blind spot, I might still have racial tension in my heart or in my life. And then secondly, are we willing to say that there might still be systemic racial tension and systemic racism going on in this country? Thank God, right? Amen. Thank God that we are over the era of slavery, (laughs) over some of those more, again, awful issues in American history that we no longer have legalized Jim Crow segregation. That is also something from the past. But are we aware of some of the other issues that still continue to oppress many of our minority brothers and sisters around the country and many of our urban centers? Are we familiar with the practice of of redlining? Have you ever heard of that before? Uh, Many people I talk to have never heard of that, but there are still bankers in America that have a big map in their office, and when people come in for loans from different zip codes, they circle that part of the map with a bright red marker, and they will not offer you a loan to buy a house and move out of your neighborhood. It's just a decision that's made simply based on zip code. And so even if these families have the economic wherewithal to to get that loan, to buy a house, to get out of the neighborhood, the decision is already made because it's been redlined. But then at the same time, they can't get a loan, but then the neighborhoods are super saturated with predatory lending. My wife and I live in Fairfield, and if you drive around in our neighborhood, I'm not exaggerating that on almost every other corner, there are payday loans, title loans, and all kinds of predatory lending institutions. Many of these places charge anywhere for 30 cents on the dollar in interest to very, very desperate families. Many of them are showing up uh, because they can't pay their light bill. They can't pay uh, for the groceries for their kids, and then all of a sudden they're underwater in debt that they'll never crawl out from underneath. There's 20, 30 of them just in our neighborhood, and they're all over and littered throughout our cities. We talk about many of our failing schools. Restoration Academy, I'm not going to talk a lot about my school, but it's essentially in hot pursuit of educational justice. 51% of all public school children in this country right now live in poverty, 51%. The majority of them live in our cities. Some of it is rural poverty, but they just did a huge expose in the Washington Post about a year ago on that very factor that starting at age four, children who grow up in poverty will enter into an educational trajectory from which they will never, ever recover from their middle class and upper class peers. The majority of those kids who live in neighborhoods with poverty are also uh, involved in communities that have an inordinate amount of crime, violence, drugs, and all kinds of other things that we're very aware of, uh, broken homes, broken families, and it leads to just basically a doom loop and a cycle from which, again, they will very rarely ever recover. But again, this targets, these are systemic things that have been in existence, this targets a wide population of many of our minority brothers and sisters from around uh, the cities and from around the country. There's an inordinate amount of them that are trapped in these types of systems. And so we need to just look at the beauty of the word reconciliation for just one second. Reconciliation is an amazing word. It's a militaristic word. And there's really two sides to it. One side of it is that it is essentially a laying down of arms between two people groups or individuals that are at odds with one another. They're essentially laying down their swords, their guns, their adversity. And then on the second side of that, they're being put right back into right relationship again. 
And as we just heard a moment ago, the reconciliation that Jesus Christ provided for us was the most extravagant of all. Before we were in relationship with Christ, we were what? We were his enemies. (laughs) We were objects of his wrath. God lowered the wrath against his son, Jesus Christ, and in turn put us in right relationship with him. So racial reconciliation is quite simply, we'll look at a text here in just a moment, it's quite simply the same. It's the laying down of the tension, it's the laying down of the adversity. And then on the flip side, it's being put into right relationship again. But it all started, we know, in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, didn't it? When Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God and to eat the fruit, and it essentially destroyed their relationship with God. Now, what was also scandalized in that exchange when they ate that fruit was that shalom itself was disrupted. Shalom is a beautiful word where we get our New Testament word or English word, peace. Okay, but the Hebrew word for shalom means this. It's one of my favorite words in Scripture. It means it's a harmony and a delight in all of one's relationships. Okay? Between God and man, between man and man, between man and creation, between man and culture, and then finally between man and himself or woman and herself. Every single one of those relationships, if there is shalom, there is harmony in that relationship, and there is delight in that relationship. But sin scandalized shalom. And we all know that in Genesis chapter 3, the relationship between God and man was disrupted by sin. Adam and Eve were essentially kicked out of the garden. There's an angel with a fiery sword left behind to protect it and to keep them out. But their own relationship with each other was disrupted as well. They no longer felt safe around each other. They mistrusted each other. They felt vulnerable And the fig leaves that they constructed for themselves were a barrier to hide that vulnerability and to protect themselves. You move just one chapter later in Genesis chapter 4, and what happens with Cain and Abel? It's the very first two brothers in Scripture, and Cain kills his brother. You fast forward just a couple more chapters, and it says that things got so desperately wicked that man and woman were so adversarial towards each other that God himself regretted making mankind. So it's a terrible, terrible statement to think about. And then God floods the earth, right? Thank God for Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives, or we would not be here today. But you spiral that forward, and to this day, we are still at odds with one another, are we not? Uh, We are tribal people. We continually pursue different ways to categorize ourselves, to find ourselves. Some of it is racial, some of it is political, some of it is denominational, and sometimes it even boils down to just Alabama-Auburn rivalries, doesn't it? Or we just literally recategorize and retribalize and are continually identifying ourselves according to certain criteria. And so we are still in the process in 2017 of seeking to restore harmony and delight in all these relationships that have been fragmented by sin. And so the text that I want to take us to just briefly this evening, I'm just hoping to set the table for our conversation tomorrow and then uh, finally tomorrow night, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have your Bible or if you have a device and you want to look at that, we can uh, take a look at that text together. And we're going to look chiefly at verses 16 through 21. Before we do that, I do want to give just a little bit of backdrop. Again, I'm not a Ph.D. theologian or historian, but the church of Corinth was a hot mess. Okay? It was a really rough church and a rough place to be. It was a port city. It was very, very ethnically diverse, very socioeconomically diverse. There was a lot of different pagan religions that were there, um, a lot of different uh, issues that were very contentious. 
And Paul is writing to them, trying to restore order to a church that was really at each other's throats. If you read through the chapter, read through 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, he's ending a ton of different disputes that are going on within the church. And so in some respects, the, the Corinthian landscape in the city of Corinth was much like the United States today with all of its diversity and the tensions that are going on there. So in verse 16 of chapter 5, Uh, Paul writes this, he says, From now on, therefore, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. This really strikes a chord with, again, I love the analogy you used earlier, David, with the, the, the two different axes of the cross. And um, for years, this is, this is me up here speaking, but for years I was deeply, deeply committed to the vertical bar. <laughs> that really the chief and utmost important thing that we do is proclaim the good news that God wants to have a relationship with man again and that that's possible through Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you right now, that is our ultimate need. That is the ultimate message. There's no greater message than that God wants to cross that chasm between us and him through Jesus Christ, that all of us might have a relationship with him. But this text touches on the horizontal bar if you look back at verse 16. Paul is saying right here, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. If you look into this verse, what Paul is saying is that we no longer categorize or create criteria or classifications for people based on their externals. We're no longer looking at the color of their skin. We're no longer looking at their socioeconomic class. We're no longer even looking at their gender. We're no longer regarding them, esteeming them based on those particular criteria. And then he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, before Paul was Paul, who was he? He was Saul. He was the persecutor of the church. Saul saw Jesus and all of his disciples as, as lunatics. He, thought, he, he believed Jesus was a crazed, delusional, poor Jewish teacher. And he sized him up based on the flesh. And he persecuted vehemently all of his followers and tried to eradicate Christianity from the landscape. But then in the road to Damascus, God knocks him off of his horse and reveals to him, no, I'm actually the risen son of God. You got that one wrong. And so Paul is has an epiphany, and he becomes obviously the much different person that we know him as in the, through these texts. And so he's saying that he once regarded Jesus according to the flesh, and he's saying we have a tendency to do that, to size people up and categorize and classify people based on those criteria, but then he provides another therefore for us. In verse 17, he says there's another therefore. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. This is the new classification. This is the new categorization by which we address and understand people is that they're either new creation or they're old creation. They're either a sinner or they are a justified sinner. I'm still a sinner, but I've been justified by the grace and blood of Jesus Christ. 
And there are those who are still in their sin and yet do not know him. He says, but this is the new creation. This is the new category. This is the new classification. And he's saying that old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ, there it is, reconciled us to himself, laid down the wrath against us and put us in right relationship to us. And here's what's beautiful. And then he gave us something beautiful and precious, and that is the ministry of reconciliation. This is something that we have been entrusted with. We have been given this exact message to bear out in the world, that, which is what? That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20 is a very, very important verse from this text for us. Paul is saying this. He's saying, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. I want to stop on that for a moment and and highlight something that he's doing for us here. He's giving to you and I an identity. He's telling us what we are. He's not telling us what we're supposed to be doing here. He's saying, this is what you are. In different texts, in different places, Jesus did that when he says, blessed are the peacemakers in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the pure in heart. He's, He's providing his own title or identity for us. And an ambassador is a very important thing. I think most of us know what that is, right? But it's someone who represents the values, the authority, and the message of a kingdom uh, that is a place that they have left, and they are actually on foreign soil. And so Paul is saying something very instructive to us here. He's saying, your values, this message, and all that is in you is actually representative of heaven. You are now representing the footsteps and the message of Jesus who has ascended into heaven. You are now his ambassadors, and you're representing that in the geographical place where you find yourself. Now, again, I'll raise my hand to this, but sometimes uh, I get this very, very twisted in my nationalism, my patriotism, and even my love of capitalism sometimes supplant the fact that I'm first and foremost an ambassador for Christ. We sometimes have a tendency to do that within the American church. And I think Paul, if he were here today, would warn us and say, listen, don't get that twisted. You are first and foremost an ambassador for Christ and shake all of your other values, your nationalism, your patriotism, and your love for other things within this country through that. But sometimes we get those two things upside down or we actually see them as completely synonymous. And I think Paul would challenge that and say, be very, very careful. I love America and I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud for what this country stands for in so many respects, but this is not my home. (laughs) Uh, Somebody just challenged me last week and they said that our loyalty is not to the nation of our birth. Our loyalty should be to the nation of our rebirth, okay? That we are representing something much deeper than that as we come from a heavenly kingdom and we're bringing this message of Christ, an appeal through Christ that comes now through us. And so he's saying, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And there's the gospel message. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I want to kind of of close just these opening remarks tonight with just a perspective, because I think there's still some challenges sometimes when people say, well, this vertical bar, I understand the horizontal bar is still a little bit of a challenge to me. Um, Why did Jesus Christ spend so much time reconciling people when he was on earth and healing people and standing in the gap for people if none of that stuff really mattered that, that much. We know for a fact he was preaching the kingdom and doing everything he could to point people to his heavenly father, but why did he stand in the gap between a marginalized woman and the people that wanted to stone her? Why did he give so much time to Samaritans, which were racial outcasts, and heal their children and, and with a Syrophoenician woman and others and say, look, I'm going to give you my time. I'm going to change your present circumstances with justice and love. 
Christ was constantly putting out little feuds between people, elevating the marginalized, toppling the powerful, and saying, there's so much good news for today. There's so much good news for right now. Yes, I cannot wait to spend eternity with you. But right now in this very day and age, this very moment in which I'm walking through this city or walking through this village, I'm trying to make things right, trying to make things good and restore that shalom. It's one of the most beautiful things when we get back to Matthew 5, verse 9. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. Okay? It's the only beatitude, and he lists several of them. It's the only beatitude where he uh, uses family language. Okay? And peace, I want you to understand this, peace can only be made in places where it has been compromised. Peace can only be made in relationships where there is friction where there's brokenness, where there's dissent, and where there's chasms. Peacekeeping is completely different. Peacekeeping is saying, I've already been afforded a certain measure of peace. I already have a kind of a hold of a certain type of life, and I'm going to do everything I can to preserve and to protect it. And Jesus is saying, but blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And essentially that means that we have to enter into relationships, sometimes with people that are very different, into communities that are very foreign, to places that are very broken, so that we can make peace in those places. And what I love about the blessing and the promise at the end of that is where he says, for you shall be called sons of God, is he's essentially saying when you go into those types of relationships, when you go into those types of contexts and you do those types of things, you're carrying on the family business. You're carrying on the family business that, that my son carried on when he was on earth. Jesus is saying, carry on my trade. It's like a father passing on to his son his trade. He's saying, you shall be called sons of God. You shall be called family. It's a beautiful, beautiful expression of what, again, we are called to be. We are peacemakers. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. There is a tremendous need for us to continue to proclaim in the uttermost parts of the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. But there's a tremendous amount of work that we need to do at the ground level, again, to restore these relationships that have been scandalized by sin. So my hope tomorrow is to uh, take us into a look at what does a healthy body look like, a kind of big church, not just faith Presbyterian, but what does a healthy body, a healthy church look like. We're going to look at another text in 1 Corinthians. And then tomorrow night, along with your pastor, I hope to provide a few action steps to encourage you for ways that you may want to get more involved either in the conversation or actually kind of living this out. So let me uh, close us in prayer, and then I think we're going to sing one more song. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the night. Thank you for your word. And again, Lord, where I started, I just pray that uh, anything that I've said of value tonight that was uh, for us to hear, that it would stick in our hearts, uh, that would move us to action. Lord, if there's anything that's come from my own flesh, my own opinions, that, Lord, you would cause those things to drift away. But, Lord, again, we want to close where we started by just uh, celebrating your mercy, as we sang at the beginning of the service, your good mercy that you uh, gave to us that we did not deserve. We thank you for the grace that you've poured out upon us that we also did not earn. And uh, what I pray that we would leave this place tonight encouraged, exhorted, challenged, and uh, deeper in love with you and uh, more willing to share this good news with those around us. Um, we love you. We praise you. And uh, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.